Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Psalm 143, verse 10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. We've got some teachers on uh, the show this hour. We've got David Clark joining us. He's author of several books, including Dialogical Apologetics and To Know and Love God. He's been over at Bethel Seminary for several years, although I think he's semi-retired right now. And then Rick Madsen, a regular guest on the show. He usually shows up with John Afonso, and he's with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, has been doing that for a while, and is also uh, just uh, an excellent voice when it comes to apologetics. And both of them are joining me today on Studio Lines. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, Rick, I understand you once uh, had David as a teacher, right? Uh, that's correct. One of the main reasons I went to Bethel Seminary uh, 25 years ago was to study with uh, Dr. Clark, and he was my professor for a long time. Then he became my mentor, <laughs> and now we talk theology all the time, and not just highfalutin theology, but how it applies to everyday life too. That's one of the golden parts of working with him. I can see your I can see you're a little bit in awe of him because you call him Dr. Clark. I'm already calling him David, so you know that's the way it works. I called him Dr. Clark when I was sitting in the classroom, and then as soon as we got out the door, hey, David, how's it going? <laughs> Especially when we're playing golf together, it's definitely first-name basis only, so. Of course. Yeah, and, yeah. and David, you've been a, a theology professor and philosophy at Bethel since the early 90s, so. Well, I actually started in 1988. Wow. And, uh, yep, and so now uh, back to the classroom after doing some other things along the way, Um and uh, but enjoying the teaching teaching role again. Yeah, I want to jump uh, quickly if I can into a little bit of the your book to know and love God. I'd love to hear a little three minute synopsis of that. You bet. This is a book about method in theology. What's the right way to go about doing theology? And so, what's the purpose and goal, and appropriate way of doing theology? And <clears throat> my basic claim is that theology is a kind of wisdom, not just a kind of knowledge. So knowledge might imply that this is, uh, that this is an activity that is oriented primarily to thinking, but uh, if we think of theology as wisdom, then certainly there's thinking involved, but it also should apply to the process of uh, developing a, a heart for God, learning how to love God, responding to God's invitation to love. And, and so Theology is about knowing God, but it's also about loving God, and it's therefore more than just a function of the mind, but it's something that invites the whole person uh, into a relationship with God. The reason I did this is because uh, there are so many people who question whether theology is a legitimate kind of knowing at all, and so part of this is just grounding in philosophy and contemporary thought the idea that it can be a legitimate, rational enterprise to to think theologically about God. 
But along the way, I want to say, yes, it is a legitimate way to think about God and and thinking about God as reasonable and rational and intelligible, but it is not an end in itself. It also leads to the love of the Father. And so the title sort of captures that, to know and to love God. And Rick, I assume you've read that book. Twice, actually. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's it's so helpful to go through something that's uh, very foundational theologically. And then when I walk on college campuses, as I do across the country, to take something something like what a scholar uh, that David Clark is, to take what he has written and to translate it into the language of college students, I found very valuable. I don't want to do that original work. I leave that to the theologians. I'm the middle guy. I'm the bridge person who takes what they've written and uh, makes it uh, uh, applicable to uh, college and graduate students. Mm-hmm. I love you uh, brainiacs that do this wonderful job of breaking down theology and making it accessible to us. But also, I just would like to ask where the emotional element fits into all of this. When I think of Jesus and Paul weeping over the lost, and there's this great emotional connection that so many people have in their faith, and I don't want to discount that or or say that's not an important part of it. Would you be willing to comment on that? For sure. Yeah, David, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, the comment that I would make is that knowing God intellectually, of course, uh, is an important factor, but the purpose is not just to have information, but the purpose is to establish a, a relationship. So, um, when you establish a relationship, you are making a commitment. Uh, you are making a, a, a risky leap of uh, promising to be loyal to another person uh, with the expectation that the other person would be loyal to you. So the Bible calls this a covenant. It's a relationship where each person is, in a way, taking the risk of promising loyalty to the other. And when both people do this mutually, you have this deep, intimate thing we call covenant love and relationship. The thing is that it's very possible to make a covenant type of relationship commitment uh, to commit yourself in loyalty to a person who's trying to con you. So the, the, the idea that we should love just anybody obviously isn't wise, uh, because there will people, be people who take advantage of that, who will seek to um, get us to commit to something that is not worthy of our love commitment. So therefore, I would suggest that wisdom is this amazing combination of having good reasons to make a commitment to a particular person. But also, in addition to that, the emotional, relational, volitional, so this is tapping into the will, uh, uh, making a commitment to another, and thus establishing an intimate relationship where you trust each other and each person is trustworthy towards the other. And uh, so, really, faith and our relationship with God and also our human relationships mirror this. Uh, faith is a whole person activity that taps into my mind so that I am committing wisely, but also taps into my will because I am making the commitment. And as I do that, I open myself to emotional connection. And that, of course, is the kind of rich, intimate relationship that we all long to have, both with God uh, and with other human beings. That's so good. I'm just taking it all in. Rick, do you have a comment on that? (laughs) Yeah. uh, When I walk on college campuses, I guess I want to communicate to students, undergrad and graduate students, the faculty that we love so much, that Christian faith is about the head 
and the heart. It encompasses both. So as uh, David suggested, the word wisdom is a good bridge word in there. But I want to say to students, you guys got to think rightly about God. The scripture doesn't leave, doesn't say, hey, whatever you want to believe, whatever you think about God is, is good. No, the scripture prescribes a way of thinking about God, and it gives us that information from cover to cover. But it's also about the heart, and you think about human beings being created in God's image. God is head and heart, uh, if I can use that metaphor, and then we, therefore, are head and heart as well. We are created in his image. We reflect who he is. He is intellectual, of course. He is emotional. We see that in the life of Jesus. Um, so there's a there's a little roundedness there that I want to communicate to students when I'm on campus, and I think that's what we're talking about here. Well, I got all excited when you started talking about wisdom, and I think everyone should stand up and cheer. It's like, well, this is what I want is wisdom, and then the practical ability to apply it in my life. Give me that over anything. All day I agree long. with that. You know, and wisdom is more <laughs> than knowledge. It is, uh, it's more than just sort of data and facts. I think wisdom includes the idea of having a broader perspective. So putting the facts and the details and the information uh, into a larger story, a larger narrative, a larger context, and it's the context that gives it, gives it meaning. Um, and so we, we need to live in light of this larger wisdom, this larger story that is really the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And uh, I would say <clears throat> that... Um, people who are making unwise choices are people who don't make decisions from a perspective of eternal values, from uh, a perspective of you're beautifully created by God, but we live in a fallen world, so you have to be careful and you have to be wise and you have to think things through. Um, they don't make decisions and actions from a perspective of God's desire that we prepare our hearts and build the kind of character uh, that will allow us to flourish in the eternal kingdom. And so um, wisdom is about making decisions and developing character and living your life in light of this big picture story, mm -hmm. which is God is the creator. We're all living in a messed up world, but God has something better for us. And so can we live in light of that truth? Mm. Let me take a little break. Dr. David Clark and Rick Matson are my guests. When we come back, I want to talk about the Trinity, um, and I'm going to try to work into the show twice this week the words Trinitarian relationality, which I read in a Dallas Willard commentary, and I don't know what it means, but I'm going to try to work it into a sentence and sound smart. Take a little break. Be right back. Dr. David Clark and Rick Matson. We're talking, uh, well, we did a little meet and greet to get things started. This is David's first time on the show. And uh, now I want to get into talking about the Trinity. Um, so I want to talk about the practical implications the Trinity has for issues today. That's a pretty big, broad, sweeping question. <laughs> Who wants to start? Who's got the courage? Mm -hmm. Well, David, you have a complete understanding of the Trinity, so why don't you go ahead? 
<laughs> well, that's uh, that's asking a lot. Uh, sometimes I say to my students, you know, any god that would be small enough to fit inside a human brain would probably not be a god we would want to worship. So we'll start mm-hmm. with that, just to understand that um, we we have uh, an outline, a sketch, but we don't have. Uh, an understanding of God that is exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. But when we think about the practical implications of the Trinity, I think what we're talking about is the idea that the internal relationships that are enjoyed by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the inner life of the Trinity is something that we, as God imagers, can enjoy as well. So that's the basic, I think, concept, is that relationships... Uh, are enjoyed by human beings, uh, never never perfect. Our relationships are flawed. Uh, they're marred by selfishness and sin. But nevertheless, we can enjoy relationships with each other as human beings. And as we do that, we are actually mirroring or copying or, as it were, um, putting into practice um, the kind of life, the kind of relational life that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit enjoy with each other. So at the middle, at the center, at the core of reality, we don't find things like electrons. Uh, at the core of reality, what we find is uh, human or uh, personal relationships and love. And uh, so that I think, is a, a critical place to start when you talk about the implications of the Trinity for human life. And Rick, you have something to add. I know you do. <laughs> uh, well, on campus, we encounter other religions, and we want to be good neighbors to our Muslim uh, friends and uh, other religions. But one of the things that is very distinctive about Christianity is community, and community is inherent in Christianity because it's inherent to the uh, nature of God. God is Trinity. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the ancient formula, was one being. We are monotheists, one being, but in three persons. And we might ask David to tease that out here in a moment. But for our purposes here, that distinguishes us. Uh, I was at Rice University a few months ago before COVID hit, and I was on stage with uh, a Muslim uh, dialogue partner, and the audience was asking us questions. And one of these, the thing came up was, well, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? You could answer that in a number of different ways. And I think in the final analysis, I'd say, even though there's some overlap, uh, probably my answer would be no at the end. I'd like to hear what David says about this. But no, because God's very nature is Trinity. It's not just a handy description, description that we use. It's in his very nature to be Trinitarian. Uh, so that's uh, really important on campus to establish Christianity as a Trinitarian uh, religion. And uh, David, did you have a, something to add to that or maybe subtract as we <laughs> think about the uh, the nature of God here? Right. No, I, I do think that uh, when I suggest that at the core, reality is relational, <clears throat> what we're saying is the most basic reality is not physical. Uh, it's not electrons. It's not matter. It's not uh, neurons or Uh, human bodies or that sort of thing, but the the most fundamental reality from which everything else flows is the being of God, and the being of God is defined by these these relationships. So you can think of 
the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as a, as a family, as a community, uh, as a society. These are all different analogies that could be used. And uh, that means that uh, the Christian view of God and the Muslim view of God are fundamentally different. Uh, the Muslim view of God argues for a single self, and the Christian view of God, uh, based on the revelation of Jesus and the New Testament, uh, really argues that within one God we have three selves, you could say, three centers of thinking, feeling, willing, acting, being. Um, and so these three selves are, are all uh, embedded in the one being of God. And that's a fundamentally different view uh, of what God is like. And one of the intellectual problems that this solves is to understand how God could be self-sufficiently loving. So if you have a single self, like a Muslim view of God, one of the challenges I think that uh, Christian thinkers would pose is, who is Allah loving? And in order for God to have someone else to love, God must create someone who, who can be the object of his love. And what that means then is that in order for Allah to be loving, a Christian would, would say, Allah has to, in a way, depend on his own creation in order to enter into love relationship. The Christian God is self-sufficiently loving because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are loving each other in community even before there's any creation. That makes the Trinity uh, self-sufficient in a way that a single self-God, like a Muslim view of God, would not be. That's really interesting. So I was thinking of the Trinity at the crucifixion. Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I assume the entire Trinity was there at the crucifixion. Yeah, I think so. I mean, God is omnipresent, so... Um, we think of all three persons as being, as it were, present uh, in that moment. And yet there is this uh, incredible biblical teaching that in the moment when the sins of the world are laid on the second person of the Trinity, there is a kind of relational rupture that occurs uh, between the Father and the Son, and presumably between the Son and the Spirit as well, although that's not stated explicitly there. Um, and so I think one of the things that that shows us is the seriousness of, uh, of our sin and the seriousness of the, of the fall and all of the ramifications of sin and, and, and the fact that we live in a fallen world. If the Father and the Son would go to this extent to address the issue of sin, that suggests that the issue is indeed a very, very serious, uh, serious question. So when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, I know that's been a divisive issue, probably, what, just throughout the entire history of the Christian Church? Um, say that again now. The, 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 has it been an issue? Yeah, I mean, it's been a divisive issue, hasn't it, through the, pretty much the entire history of the Christian Church? Well, there were in the first uh, three centuries of the Church— uh, debates about how to make sense out of the, the revelation. So in the Old Testament, you have a greater focus on the unity of God, and that makes sense because the Old Testament Jewish nation is living in a, in a polytheistic world, mm -hmm. uh, living in a world where there are gods everywhere. Every nation has its own god, and there, hither and yon, there are gods everywhere. So 
in contrast to that cultural setting, uh, the revelation of the Old Testament writers and prophets is focusing very much on uh, the idea that there is a single God, not all these multiplicities of gods. And so the gods of the Assyrians and the gods of the Babylonians and so forth, these are not true gods because there's only one true God. So that's the focus in the Old Testament. Then after 400 years of silence, Jesus shows up and suddenly Jesus says, oh, by the way, I and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. If you have seen the Father, you have seen me. Uh, if uh, you know, you think it's amazing that I can uh, cause a man who could not walk to begin walking, watch this. Your sins are forgiven, and only God forgives sins. So suddenly, uh, after you know two millennia of teaching that there is one God, this person Jesus of Nazareth shows up and says, "But by the way, I'm I'm divine as well." And so now the church has to struggle with this sort of seeming polarity that there is one God and also. Jesus is Israel's God. And so at the beginning, you know, they, they struggled with how to express this and how to understand it, and it took some several centuries to figure that out. And, of course, in, in some very important uh, church councils at Nicaea and Chalcedon, uh, happening in the 300s and the 400s, the church came to a formula that helped to understand how God could be one in being, but three in his selfhood or personhood. And uh, since then, that's been pretty much the definition of an Orthodox Christian. So if you do not agree with the Trinity, then that's a serious serious, uh, flaw in your theological thinking from the perspective of an Orthodox Christian. Mm -hmm. There's some great distinctions where uh, Jesus is talking to the Father. Jesus speaks to the Father about the Father sending a helper, the Holy Spirit. Um, So pretty much shows that Jesus is not considering himself to be the Father or the Holy Spirit at times. Um, And so, but he says, I and the Father are one. So is he speaking to himself? Or sometimes that ends up being very confusing to try to explain to people. Well, you're absolutely right. And so Christians uh, work on this doctrine of the Trinity as a way of accounting for Uh, the various themes and teachings that emerge from the New Testament. How can we put all this together in a way that fits together? Um, And so the doctrine of the Trinity is, in a way, the answer to making sense out of the biblical revelation that starts with the emphasis in the Old Testament on one God, but then adds to that this revelation of the second person of the Trinity, uh, of course, Jesus Christ. And so you're right that there are these various statements in Scripture that the doctrine of the Trinity is a complex enough hypothesis, a complex enough model, I guess would be a better term, uh, to account for all those data in in the Scripture. Yeah, let's take a little break. Uh, David uh, Clark and Rick Matson are my guests. If you have a question about the Trinity, you can text it over to me, 877-933-2484, and I will let them answer it because I'm not going to do that, but you can Text me 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
are back with Dr. David Clark and Rick Madsen. We're talking about the Trinity, and because we have uh, listeners uh, from all walks of their journey with Christ, some new believers, and when I think about them trying to grasp the idea of the Trinity, some might be thinking, well, how is this different from polytheism? Great question. Rick, go for it. Yeah. Well, it seems like in the Trinity, you have this middle ground. On the one side, you just have this unitary God, this single God, as we see in Judaism and Islam. Although in Judaism, there are hints of things to come, but in the Old Testament. On the other side of the spectrum, you could say, is polytheism, this idea that there are many gods. And the Trinity, uh, the idea of the Trinity, finds that, that subtle middle ground that... Uh, the Trinity is one being. There you have your monotheism, and yet Trinity is three persons, not three separate gods, but three persons. Uh, and so that subtle middle ground is what we're trying to communicate to uh, people in our churches and for myself to students on college campuses. And once you sort of get that in your head, like it really starts to make sense, and then it opens up a whole flood of other issues, and it's a very fruitful resource for uh, doing theology and other issues as well. David, did you have anything to, to add or, again, subtract from that? <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, a lot of people wonder, uh, how could God be three gods and one God at the same time? And it's important to say that that's not what's being said. Um, some people really object, how could God be three and one in the same sense or in the same at the same time? But here's an analogy. I have 10 fingers, but I only have two eyes, and I have one nose. Well, that doesn't make me a contradiction, because I'm 10 in one sense, namely in my fingers. I'm two in another sense, namely in my eyes. I'm one in a third sense, and namely in my nose. And so the idea that there are three and one shouldn't be conflicting, because God is three in one sense, in his self, in in the three persons and selves within the community of the Trinity, but God is one in a different sense, namely in his being. And so um, that's just a sort of analogy that helps us get past the mathematical question that some people have trying to understand how God is three and one. Three in one sense, one in a different sense. Great answer. Uh, Bill? Bill, could I jump in here and ask David a a question? David, you and I have worked on some projects that have flowed out of the foundational notion of the Trinity, uh, that being uh, gender, sexuality, marriage, covenant, diversity, race. I mean, there are so many things that if you press them down, down, down to the very foundational issues, you get this uh, starting point as the Trinity. And just wondering if you could comment on Trinity as a starting point for these various ideas of human relations uh, and just the diversity that we see in the human population. Right. I think that uh, every relationship involves both connection and also separation or, or distance. And that's exactly what you have within the Trinity. You've got the connection, the identity of the persons of the Trinity in one God, one being, but you also have the distinction between the persons. And so human relationships mirror that. And whether this be a friendship, uh, a parent-child relationship, a husband-wife relationship, relationship between two people from different cultures, 
all of these relationships in different ways mirror the, the one and the multiple uh, aspects that are that are embedded in the Trinity. Now, every human relationship, of course, is also soured by sin. And so um, we're never going to mirror the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity perfectly. But in a way, the doctrine of the Trinity gives us a model, a picture uh, to shoot for, uh, to make our human relationships better. So just to take an example of a husband and a wife, uh, one of the things that makes marriages not work well is when one partner acts selfishly. In the doctrine of the Trinity, you see the, the son uh, acting selflessly toward the father, the father acting selflessly toward the son, and, and that then becomes the picture, the ideal, the model, uh, the target on the wall that we're shooting for uh, as we live out our human relationships. And you could apply that again, as Rick has suggested, across the board to many different types of relationships, including employer, employee relationships, for instance, in the workplace and so on. Mm-hmm. So, gentlemen, let's say I became a Christian yesterday and I'm learning all about the Trinity now, and here's my question. Do I divvy up my time equally praying to each member of the Trinity? <laughs> David, I was going to ask you about that. Who do we pray to? Sure. You know, well, the disciples asked Jesus, uh, how should we pray? And he said, our Father. And so it is, uh, you know, very customary for Christians to focus primarily on, uh, on praying to the Father. Um, we often start our prayers, dear Father in heaven, uh, addressing the Father. But I, I would say that it's perfectly legitimate to uh, pray to any one of the three members of the Trinity or to pray to the Trinity as kind of a composite, uh, because in no case are you praying to someone who is not divine. Now, there are folks who, this is controversial as to whether this is actually happening, but sometimes people suggest that uh, our friends in the Catholic Church pray to Mary or pray to the saints. Now, there are subtle distinctions there. Sometimes it's called veneration, not prayer. Um, But if one were to pray to a saint, say St. Francis or someone like that, uh, that would not be appropriate for a Christian because you wouldn't pray to someone who is not divine. But Mm -hmm. in praying to the Father, Son, and Spirit, you're praying uh, to a divine person in any of those three cases. Now, I notice that many times we end our prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. And so we start by, dear Father in heaven, then we offer thanksgiving prayer requests uh, and so forth. Uh, worship, and then we end in Jesus' name. And that, and what I noticed there is you've got two members of the Trinity in the prayer. Mm-hmm. And so often, especially in a public prayer, I, I like to pray in a Trinitarian way to say, Our Father in heaven, offer the prayer, and I pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And it's delightful, I think, to uh, to offer a fully Trinitarian prayer where all three persons are engaged uh, as the as the person is worshiping God through prayer. Could I add something in there? And that is the Great Commission uh, talks about uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So one of the ways that the Church expressed its belief in the Trinity is to say that when you go under the waters of baptize, you are being baptized in the name of the three members of the Trinity. And I think that 
ancient formula can ground our own practices in baptism and can ground our own practices uh, in prayer as well. When I think of some of the other religions out there, like Mormonism, they they are pretty much denying the Trinity, um, and yet they will, on occasion, try to make it sound like, well, you know, Christians and Mormons were pretty much believing the same thing. And it's so important for Christians to understand what it is that they believe, because if they say that Jesus is a created being and the Trinity doesn't exist, I mean, that's about as far away from Christianity as you can get. Yeah, that's true. In the first first three centuries of the Church, there were options which uh, suggested, there were philosophies, theologies that suggested uh, that Jesus was created, that he was not the creator, he he is created. And um, the Church was quite clear that the New Testament just doesn't agree with that. Uh, I think the greatest passage on that, and there are many, but one wonderful passage on this is Colossians chapter 1, which very clearly says that Jesus was the one who did the creating, um, and that through him all things were created. And what's very interesting is that when you read the Jehovah's Witness quote-unquote translation, it's actually a distortion, but you read the the Jehovah's Witness translation of that, the, the text actually says, and through Christ, all other things were created. And they add the word other in there to make it seem as though the Father is the creator, the Father created the Son, and then the Son created everything else. Uh, and that's just a fundamental distortion of what Colossians 1 is saying. So um, that, that core idea that Jesus is the creator, that Christ is the creator of all things, uh, is a key reason why uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is required, really, if we're going to be faithful to the Scripture. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I know this is probably a very difficult question to even ponder, but would we be able to see all three members of the Trinity once we get to heaven? <laughs> that is a great question, and um, I do not know the answer. Yeah. Uh, nor do I. I expect we'll find out one day. Yeah, I mean, we keep talking about the th- three and one, and I'm thinking when we get to heaven, will we go, all right, there we got the three and one pe- picture right in front of us. <laughs> well, it is the case that when Jesus was on earth, we saw just the second person of the Trinity uh, and not the other two persons in physical form. So that may be a clue, maybe not. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And at Jesus' baptism, you have the Father speaking, you have the Son in the story, who's the main character, and then you have the Spirit descending upon the Son. And then later on, Jesus says, hey, it's better off for you disciples and for the world if I leave because the Holy Spirit is going to come and take my place. So you might say then that the visibility of the Holy Spirit is in the church, is in the body of Christ these days, so in a sense. Uh, we can see the Spirit, not physically, but uh, His manifestation through the Church. Mm-hmm. When I think of some brothers and sisters in Christ that I know, I want to get back to prayer, because this is something that I just popped into my head again. There's so many people that want to start leading their prayers by petitioning the Holy Spirit. They want the power of the Holy Spirit in their day, in their life, in their everything they do. 
as if that's their go-to person of the Trinity. What, what was your, what is your um, take on that? Uh, David, I have a thought about that. Go for it. And and that is, if, if we can establish the first platform that it's okay to pray to any member of the Trinity, but that's a fine thing or two as a composite, as uh, David said earlier, like uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we might also think about the special ministries that defined, uh, didn't define their person, but defined what they did, their roles. So for the Holy Spirit, the special ministry of the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're praying about a matter that has something to do with the empowerment of the Spirit, with the fruits of the Spirit, or the gifts of the Spirit for healing, let's say, then it seems to me it would be very appropriate to address that member of the Trinity that has to do uh, with the circumstances that you find yourself in. Uh, David, would you agree with that, or what, what do you think? Sir, I think that's appropriate. I would, I would not want to say, though, that the only way to, as it were, access the power of God was to bypass the Father and the Son. Um, right. I think it's, uh, it's clear that when you pray to the Father, um, you're asking the Father to send the Spirit, um, mm. and sending the Spirit in all of the things that the Spirit offers, which, as Rick has said, includes the power of the Spirit. It also includes the comfort of the Spirit. It includes the gifts of the Spirit and so forth. So, you know, I wouldn't say that it's it's wrong to address the Spirit in that respect. I, I think I would hesitate uh, against a person who wants to focus on just one person of the Trinity and to exclude the others for some, for some reason. Uh, I think the, the more balanced biblical approach is to say that uh, we address all three persons of the Trinity and um, engage them in differently at different times as we need different things. Perhaps um, when we say thank you to the Holy Spirit, to, uh, thank you to Jesus for dying on the cross for us, we would be pretty clear to say that uh, this is Christ, and we would address Jesus in that uh, moment of gratitude rather than saying to the Father, thank you for dying on the cross for us, because it's actually uh, quite clear in the history of the Church that the Father did not die for our sins, uh, the Son did. So it's okay to focus on one for a particular point. Uh, I wouldn't want to focus on one as sort of an exclusive way of engaging with God. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a little break. Dr. David Clark and Rick Matson are my guests. We're talking about the Trinity. I've got a couple of questions coming in. If you've got one, let me know what it is. I'll ask on your behalf. 877-93-FAITH. 877-93-FAITH. Be right back. today, which is uh, an interesting topic for sure. We don't talk about it enough. I'd love to talk about it some more. Uh, David Clark, Rick Manson are my guests. And I've got a couple of uh, comments coming in, gentlemen. Um, Let's see. What about the first stating that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us? 
we have to pray to the Father through Jesus or in just or in Jesus's name. What are your thoughts? Well, it's clear that the Bible, the Bible pictures uh, Jesus in this place of honor at the right hand of God, uh, the Father, and um, and so it's a it's a place that certainly represents the approval of the Father and a, and a deep and intimate relationship. Uh, the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit prays on our behalf. Um, it also says, as you quoted, that Jesus prays. But uh, Romans talks about the Holy Spirit praying, you know, with groanings that cannot be understood. Um, and so I think the the idea here is that uh, in scripture we get this sense that the Father, Son, and Spirit are working together. Uh, there is a collaboration, as it were, uh, and many of the things that, that happen, all three persons of the Trinity are involved, although perhaps in slightly different ways. Go back to the creation. The Father is involved in the creation. The Son and the Spirit are as well. So uh, when we pray, you know, I could imagine the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this is a surmisal and, and imagination, but the three persons of the Trinity having a conversation about the thing that uh, we're sharing. And uh, the three of them are collaborating and discussing and, and uh, the mutual concern, care, love, and compassion that each person of the Trinity has for us is expressed uh, in the fact that they are having a conversation about the things that we've brought, uh, uh, brought up as important to us. Uh, the things that are important to us are important to the, the members of the Trinity as well. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. Do you have a problem with thinking of God as three persons of divine essence rather than one being? I would say, define terms here. Uh, the concept of uh, essence is, uh, you know, is a philosophical idea, and the that has a long history. Um, but under certain definitions, I would consider it to be a, an equivalent of the idea of a single being, and uh, so it's it's likely um, likely fine. But as in many of these situations, what we want to do is just to be careful to define our terms in such a way that we don't get out of line with what the church has always taught. Mm-hmm. Rick, you got anything to jump in with? Yeah, I was wondering, David, do you think uh, the Holy Spirit is neglected in evangelical churches? Uh, there used to be this teaching that went around, and I don't hear it anymore, that said the Holy Spirit was the quiet member of the Trinity, the shy member or something like that, which I know is a bit uh, a figure of speech. But uh, how can the Holy Spirit be properly emphasized and hasn't been emphasized uh, in a, uh, properly in evangelical churches? You know, I think if you go back to the history, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 was focused very much on the person of Jesus. And uh, the, the, the challenge for people trying to understand the New Testament is, how could Israel's God, who is a single God, uh, suddenly be represented by or be incarnated in the human person, Jesus? And so the big challenge in conversation was, what, do we, what sense can we make out of Jesus? Once we figured out how to make sense out of Jesus, namely the Father is one person, Jesus is a second person, but they inhere in a single essence or in a, in a single being, it, it was conceptually not that difficult to add the, 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 the Holy Spirit to that formula, as it were. The other thing that's interesting is that if you think about the Reformation period, you have 
a very strong emphasis on Christ. And the reason for that is that Luther and the other reformers wanted to emphasize that salvation is rooted in the work of Christ. Salvation is not rooted in our own works as human beings. And so there's a lot of uh, emphasis on, on Jesus Christ. And the, the focus on the Holy Spirit historically has sort of exploded maybe 150 to 100 years ago uh, in the emergence of the Pentecostal and charismatic movements. I would consider uh, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements to be a helpful corrective to a view of the Trinity that actually left the third person of the Trinity out. Now, if you go too far in that direction and it's all about the Holy Spirit and you leave the first two persons of the Trinity out, that's not good either. But really, it's a balance and a corrective that we need to get all three persons sort of working together uh, in a balanced way. If I could just jump in here. Uh, David, one of the things that happens on campus all the time, you have buzzwords like unity and diversity. And I just find the Trinity to be a helpful concept to talk about both maybe starting with diversity and moving to unity. And students are interested in diversity, and that's a given. They are also interested in unity, but usually they have a hard time putting those two things together. How can you be diverse and still be unified? Does that mean you're unified politically? Does that mean you're unified socially in friendship? What does that really mean? But uh, starting with the Trinity, I think you can make a lot of progress on putting these two concepts together of diversity and unity. And uh, I, I guess we're overlapping into campus politics here a little bit, but I just think it's really interesting and wondering if you'd have a comment on that. I think it's uh, fascinating to think that if you study the history of philosophy, one of the earliest philosophical questions that the ancient Greek philosophers, and I'm talking four or 500 BC now, uh, wanted to debate was what they called the issue of the one and the many. And how is it that we can have unity and diversity in, in different language? So this is not a new question. It's sort of been a, a question that has been uh, part of human thought for literally millennia. Uh, I do think that thinking theologically about these questions, you know, we want to hold sort of in combination uh, the unity and the diversity. And if you think about a married relationship between a husband and a wife, there is one relationship, there is one marriage, there is unity of love. There is also two persons and diversity of personality uh, and diversity of interests and uh, diversity of gifts. So it's not hard to hold together both the idea of unity and diversity. I think in our political setting, though, uh, what we have focused on a great deal in recent times is diversity. And I think it, we would be helped if we could imagine a way to balance out uh, a recognition of diversity and an honoring of legitimate diversity, but also uh, finding places of common ground. And what I think we know from social psychology is that people flourish and relationships grow when we both honor the diversity, but also find some kind of common life, common cause, common perspective. We focus on the things we share, uh, as well as recognizing and honoring uh, the things that we are not sharing. So we really need both in order to have healthy relationships. All right, let me squeeze this question in, because we just got a minute and a half left. Um, 
I'm a Jew, and the Trinity is why we Jews reject Christianity. It is a cover for polytheism invented by a Greek church with multiple gods. I understand that for the first 200 years, Jews were the primary converts. They would have said the Shema two to three times a day. Yeah, I, I appreciate that perspective. I would respectfully not agree that it's a cover for polytheism at all. Um, it is really seeking to um, be faithful to what Jesus himself has said uh, about himself. So Jesus claimed to forgive sin. Jesus accepted worship from others. Uh, Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. And so it is about um, honoring and respecting what Jesus said when he claimed to be the Messiah who was prophesied in the Jewish Old Testament, the Jewish uh, scriptures. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's uh, just about being faithful to what Jesus has revealed to himself, not really about being a polytheist. Yeah. Well, we just got started. Now we're out of time. That's no fun. <laughs> we'll have you back. Thank you so much for uh, being willing to be on the show today. Great to be with <laughs> you. Thank you. Yep, Dr. David yeah. Clark, Rick Madsen, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the night. And that wraps up our show for the day. Thank you for uh, joining me today. It's nice to be back after a short break, and it's great to be with you. I hope your day has gone well, and I hope your evening is wonderful. I can't wait to be with you tomorrow. Have a good night. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.